John 12, 12. <clears throat> the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast that heard that Jesus that heard sorry heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, Look, you see that you are gaining nothing. He is, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So Jesus came to Philip, sorry, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to, wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it saw, said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light." so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 
If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So this morning we're continuing with our look at, at John 12, verses 12 to 50. And uh, if you remember last week, I entitled my sermon after the, the children's song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. And I was going to actually have us sing this song, but there was a, was a small revolt, so we, we, we decided to, uh, to actually hold off on that. And again, it's not that there's anything inappropriate about the song. It's actually, I believe, pretty doctrinally correct, but it's just come to be associated with, uh, with maybe with things that are maybe less doctrinally correct. So, but, but as we're going to see that the highs and the lows of this chapter, it might leave you wondering, does Jesus really have the whole world in his hands? And the highs and the lows are apparent even from the beginning of the chapter. This chapter begins, if you remember, as Mary is anointing the feet of Jesus with expensive ointment and wiping them with her hair in, in an act of, of supreme devotion. And then right there in the midst of it, we have the low point of, of Judas greedily rebuking her because he wanted to skim off the prophets. And so then right after that, we, what we began with last week was the jubilation of the triumphal entry with a huge crowd gathered outside the gates of Jerusalem, waving palm branches and singing praises to Jesus. And then we have a new development as to the chagrin of the, of the Pharisees. Gentile Greeks are even amongst those who are seeking after Jesus. And then we have the ensuing conversation where Jesus delineated the cost of discipleship, saying, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, verse 25. But, as we saw immediately, death was not a price that Jesus was unwilling to pay himself. He said that he had come for this very hour, for the glory of the Father, who himself spoke in an audible voice saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus spoke of the death that awaited him in verse 32 saying, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now he spoke, of course, of his crucifixion where he was hung between heaven and earth on a cruel Roman cross. And I had intentions of completing the chapter this week, but as, as so often happens, I, I get into the, the text and realize that there's more here than I could possibly do in one sermon. So instead of going from all the way down to verse 50, I'm just going to focus this morning on verses 37 to 43. <clears throat> but perhaps the, the best known phrase from this passage is Jesus' statement in verse 47. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And then it might seem strange, though, that, that this whole passage is primarily about the rejection of Jesus. And we'll, we'll understand that a little bit better, Lord willing, next week. 
But in verses 37 to 41, we see that, that many from the crowds who were cheering for Jesus at the triumphal entry reject him just as Isaiah had prophesied. And then in verses 42 and 43, we have many of the, re- the authorities rejecting him because they feared the Pharisees. And then next week, we're going to see in verses 44 to 50, how Jesus explains that he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But nonetheless, rejection of him will be judged. Now, it's hard to say exactly how much time has passed since the triumphal entry, but it's not immediately afterwards. There's a very important event that has taken place between the triumphal entry and what we're seeing here this morning, the second cleansing of the temple. Now, John records a cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, just after he had turned water to wine at the wedding of Cana, back in chapter 2. But Jesus actually cleansed the temple two times. He did it here as well at the end of his ministry. And there's, there's, if, if you're wondering about that, there's actually details that are contained there that, that will show you that these are indeed two separate events. The, the second cleansing of the temple, the one here at the tail end of Jesus' ministry, is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, and it takes, it's recorded right here after the triumphal entry. But again, in this passage, the theme is one of rejection. And so in verses 37 to 41, we'll see rejection prophesied, and then in verses 42 and 43, we'll see rejection of religion, and then next week we'll see in verses 44 to 50, Lord willing, rejection judged. So first of all, verses 37 to 41, rejection prophesied. In verses 35 and 36, Jesus had told his listeners to believe in the light while it was still among them. This was both a command and it was also a warning. Jesus was telling them that they were in darkness, but that Jesus was the light. He was the word become flesh. And the command was to believe in him. Believe in him. But the warning was that the time to hear the gospel preached directly from Jesus himself was rapidly drawing to a close. And then after declaring these things, Jesus departed and hid himself from them. Now, this might seem strange to ears that have been conditioned with modern evangelistic methods. Shouldn't he have stayed and tried to convince them? Shouldn't he have stood there and just pleaded with them again and again, repent, believe in me? But he didn't. He didn't because he knew what was in their hearts. So he walked away. Not even a voice from heaven could convince them. Not even the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead could convince them. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. John says in 2031 that the miracles that that he recorded were signs that were meant to provoke belief. But no miracle could change a hard heart. Just think about that for a second. We, we look at books like, like, the, the, like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, and we see 
irrefutable evidence that, that, of, of, about who Jesus is. But no evidence will suffice because of the hardness of people's hearts. They will interpret the evidence based on their presuppositions. Take just as an illustration the issue of, of evolution versus creation. Creationists and evolutionists have exactly the same evidence. But one, because of their presuppositions, the, the, the one who believes in evolution looks at the evidence and sees mere chance. They see random circumstances and, and they don't see God in it. But the, the creationist, on the other hand, looks at creation and sees the creator. They have the same evidence, but they draw different conclusions. And we saw that the, the, the hardness of people's hearts was such that even though Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, they still rejected him. On Friday morning, Jane and I were reading Deuteronomy 29 together. And just to set the, the scene for that, the people are about to cross the Jordan River, but without Moses. Moses is about to die. And so Moses summoned all Israel together and reminded them of what they had seen, of all that the Lord had done before their eyes in Egypt. They had seen great trials and signs and miracles, but verse 4 to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. They could not see because God had not enabled them to see. Now, that might be hard for you to, to grasp, but it's about to get even harder. These people, supposedly his people, had just been welcoming him into the city. Vast crowds had assembled and were cheering for Jesus. They, they had lauded him as a hero. And now they're turning their backs on him. And just in a few days, many of these same people are going to be calling for his crucifixion. But again, this might be hard, but we need to see what the Bible declares, that this was indeed the fulfillment of prophecy. John says that they did not believe in him so that, so that the, the words of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Verse 38. So what he's saying here is that Scripture not only foretold their unbelief, Scripture required their unbelief. As Jonathan Edwards says, with, with God, foreknowledge is foreordination. Consider Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So beloved, God is sovereign. There is no rebel molecule in all of his universe. He controls everything, but mysteriously, he is still not the author of sin. God is in control, but is not the author of sin. But he uses sin ultimately for his glory. 
Think about the, about the, the cross of Christ, the most heinous thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe. But this was part of the plan of God, that the, the foreordination of God, that Christ would be delivered over and crucified by the hands of sinful men. But these men are still responsible. God is sovereign, but men are responsible. Man bears the full responsibility for his actions. In a few weeks, Lord willing, we'll be looking at, at John chapter 13, where Jesus says in the last, in the, at the Last Supper in verse 19, From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Now that I am should, should tweak something in your mind. We talk about this repeatedly, that this is intentionally the same formulation that, that the Lord used in, in Exodus when he revealed himself to Moses saying, say that I am has sent you. That Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh. Then two verses later, Jesus predicts Judas' Judas's betrayal of him. So the foreknowledge of his, of his betrayal by Judas proves that Jesus is divine. This event must take place. Yet, Judas is still responsible for his sin. But what is the, the prophecy that, that John says here must be fulfilled? That of Isaiah 53. This is one of the, the clearest proclamations of the substitutionary death of Christ in the whole Old Testament. And Isaiah, so John quotes the first verse of Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So who has believed our report? John is saying, who has believed the testimony of Jesus? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed in Christ through his miracles? His people rejected him, but God exalted him. And in verse 39, John reinforces the reason for their unbelief, citing another prophecy from Isaiah. But again, this might be hard for you. In Isaiah 40, John quotes Isaiah 6, 10. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears, and, and sorry, see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. John says in verse 41 that Isaiah said these things because he saw God's glory and spoke of him. So there in Isaiah 6, Isaiah relayed this glorious revelation of the glory of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the one seraph called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And in the light of the holiness of God, Isaiah is keenly aware of his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of those amongst whom he lives. But the seraphim 
touched his lips with a coal from the altar and declared that his guilt is taken away and that his sin is atoned for. And then the call comes for one to bear witness. And so with his his repentant heart, Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. And there God commanded Isaiah to proclaim a message that he knew would be rejected. Now again, this may challenge your theology, but this text is saying that God has blinded their eyes, that God has hardened their hearts. These are, these are the sorts of things that we, we tend to attribute to Satan, not to God, this, this blinding of hearts. Consider 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. We'll go back to 3 for, to set the context. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the small g God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there, this blinding is actually attributed to Satan. But here in Isaiah 6, This is God who is doing it. It is God who is blinding eyes and hardening hearts. He did the same thing to the Amorites in Joshua 11, verse 20. So please please turn with me there. Joshua 11, verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So God hardened hearts. He hardened their hearts that they would be destroyed. But of course, the hearts of the Amorites were already hard. They were were born that way. These were people who were were even sacrificing their own children in the fire to false gods. And God had told, said 400 years earlier that he would bring judgment against the Amorites. And he had waited for 400 years to bring down this judgment on these wicked people. So God, in his judgment, hardened their hearts for their destruction. Again, we, we need to let God's word speak for itself here. We, we, I, I realize that, that some here, here are probably hearing some of these things for the first time, and this might be a challenge to you. But this type of judgment wasn't limited to the Gentiles. God, in Isaiah 6, hardened the hearts of, a, of Isaiah's Israelite audience so that it would not turn and be saved. And similarly, God hardened the hearts of those who had heard the message of Jesus so that they would not turn and be saved. And these are not isolated incidents in Scripture. Just a couple of examples. Romans 9.18 God has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. And 2 Thessalonians 2.11 and 12 God sends those who refuse to love truth a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
Now you might be thinking here, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that, that God would, would command of people what they cannot do. If they cannot repent. And that, that God would, would, would actually put hardness on people's hearts. But you need to remember that we were all born in sin. We all had hard, rebellious hearts. So the fair thing would be for God to condemn everybody. That's what's fair. That is what would be required. But God, in his infinite mercy, has chosen to save some. Furthermore, again, these people that God hardens are already guilty. Nobody twisted their arms and forced them to sin. They're doing what is according to their own corrupt will. They're simply acting according to their fallen nature, and they're getting what they deserve. And this is part of God's righteous judgment against them. However, for, for we who are in Christ, for we who are God's elect, Christ got what we deserve. Christ got what we deserve. He was punished in our place. And there's many even, uh, you can listen to debates between Christians and atheists where this is a fundamental sticking point for them. They say it is unfair that somebody would be punished on behalf of another person's sin. But what these men are doing are, are showing that they think that they are greater than God, that they have the absolute understanding of right and wrong that usurps even God's authority. But beloved, what makes something right is because God declares it or God does it. He is the just judge, not us. And so if God decrees that, that some would go to eternal judgment and that some would be saved, then God is showing on the one hand his infinite justice and his holiness and his wrath, and on the other, his love and his mercy and his grace. And the place where you can see that most profoundly and most powerfully is at the cross of Christ. But there in verses 42 and 43, we see rejection in religion. Rejection in religion. Now, one of the, the major themes of John's gospel is the rejection of Jesus by his own people. We've already seen how the masses have rejected him, and now we're going to see how the religious authorities do the same thing. But at first glance, it doesn't look like they're rejecting him. It says that, that many of them believed in him. But John had declared that this rejection would take place in the prologue of his gospel account, John 1, 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But here in verse 42, John says that, that many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So, so the question needs to be asked, what then does it mean to believe in Jesus? 
In John 2, 23, after Jesus, Jesus had cleansed the temple the first time, it's written that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So they apparently believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. There was a quality of faith that seemed to be lacking. And then John 8.30, John says that, that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, truly you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But then just a few verses later, in, in verse 44, after they had challenged Jesus in his teaching, he tells them, you are of your father, the devil. This is the same people that had apparently believed in him. Jesus is saying, you are of your father, the devil. So clearly, they were not genuinely saved. So what then of, of these religious authorities... It seems that at this point, they were not yet believers. There was a measure of belief. They were convinced by what they saw and what they heard, but they feared men more than they feared God. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. But just think about that for a moment. Think about about how ridiculous it is that they would not want to be put out of the synagogue. What was the synagogue supposed to be for in the first place? Wasn't it supposed to be for the worship of God? And so the very system that was supposed to lead people to God was actually driving them from God. Why would somebody want to be part of an institution that claimed to worship God but denied him by rebelling against his son. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, it says. Jesus had said earlier in John 5, 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? So it seems that at least at this point that these people were, these men were not willing to believe in Christ unto salvation. They were not willing to confess Christ. However, this group might have included Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who we find in John 19 making preparations for the burial of Jesus. And perhaps it included many of the priests who became obedient to the faith in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. But just as we've seen how we are, or are not to, to judge the, the end of the story by the middle of the story, we saw that with Lazarus, how it, it looked bleak, it looked horrible for the situation of Lazarus until Jesus came. We don't judge the story before the end, so we also don't know the final verdict on those who deny Christ. I was talking with a man yesterday at the wedding who's a prison guard and, and a Christian, and he was saying that, that he really doesn't see a lot of fruit for his ministry. He has opportunities to proclaim the gospel to these prisoners who you think would be at the, the lowest of the low, and if anybody should be willing to receive Christ, it would be these prisoners. But many of them, in the hardness of, hearts, of their hearts, the vast majority do not receive Jesus. They reject him. 
We talked about how quite often when you proclaim the gospel to somebody, you don't know what the impact is going to be a day later, a week later, a month later, 10 years later. You don't know. The, the woman who, who gave me that, that gospel tract in the store that I was working at 20 years ago had no idea that, that a week later that I, I came to Christ, and, and she, she won't know until, until eternity. We don't judge the story before the end. And, and this goes both ways. Many, many of us know people who, who at one point seemed to be powering on in the faith and, and really, really looked like solid Christians, but they walked away. And now they're, they're living in total rebellion against the Lord. But again, we don't know how their story is going to end. During the, the persecution by the Romans in the early church, Christians were told to deny Christ or be tortured and killed. And of course, many stood firm and faced horrific deaths in the arena as they were, were killed by gladiators, as they were, 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 were put on, on hot iron, as, as they, were, as they were, were torn apart by, by savage beasts. But there were, however, some in the church who did deny Christ in order to save their lives. Some of them even, even gave names and betrayed others in the church. But when the persecution ended, many of these men and women came slinking back to the church, seeking to be welcomed back into fellowship. And so the church was in a, in a quandary. What do we do about these people? who had denied Christ when the going got hard, but now that it's easier, they come back. If the persecution happens again, what are they going to do? Do we welcome these people back as brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do we exclude them as unbelievers? What do you think happened when, when they did welcome many of them back? But then the persecution started again, and then these same people did, it, did what they had done the first time. Again, they denied Christ. Imagine if, if that were to happen. Lord forbid that this would happen in our midst. But imagine if, if persecution broke out in this country. And some of the people may be sitting on, on the pew behind you. When the authorities came saying, give us names, Who, who's a part of this, this Gushigan Fellowship Baptist Church? And they gave, they gave a full list. And then the authorities went and arrested and, and tortured and killed some of, some of the people here that, that you know and love. And then the persecution ends and then they, they come back. But then they do it again. What would you do? I confess, I really don't know what we would do in that situation. We would need supernatural wisdom from the Lord in order to be able to, to, to love people who, who had betrayed us like that. But it works the other way too. Maybe you've, you've heard of, of Thomas Cranmer. He was, was an English reformer and he was the Archbishop of Canterbury during the time of Henry VIII and Edward VI. And he was still the archbishop until the, the, the time of Mary I, who, who you might recognize under the name of Bloody Mary. 
She was, was a Roman Catholic, and as she took the throne, Cranmer was put on trial for heresy and treason. Now, Roman Catholicism, like Pharisaical Judaism, was a system that was supposed to be leading people to God, but instead was driving people and keeping them from God. But being threatened with, with death by being burned at the stake, Cranmer signed recantations that, among other things, denied the principles of the Reformation and supported Roman Catholic Mass. And Mary seemed to have gained a victory against the Protestants, but her revenge would only be satisfied with the death of Cranmer. And so on, on the day of his execution, they had a church service, and, and many both Roman Catholics and Protestants came out to this event. Roman Catholics seeking a, a justification for, the, for Cranmer's recantation. And the, the Protestants coming out just... just in, in utter despair over, over, the, over what one of, one of their heroes had done in, in denying the faith. And a sermon was preached in which, in which Cranmer, who the, 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 preach, the, the preacher was, was a Roman Catholic cleric, and, and he, he spoke out saying that, that Cranmer had done the right thing and that, that Cranmer, even unto death, could hope in the mercy of his Lord because he, is, he had upheld the, the Roman Catholic Mass. But then on the other side of the room, Cranmer stood weeping bitterly. Weeping bitterly. And then he was finally given opportunity to say a few words before he was killed. And he cried out, O Father of heaven, O Son of God, Redeemer of the world, O Holy Ghost, three persons in all one God, have mercy on me. Most wretched, most wretched caitiff and miserable sinner, I have offended both against heaven and earth more than my tongue can, can confess, more than my tongue can express. And so he renounced his former recantation, recantation and declared, for as much as my hand hath offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For when I am come to the fire, it shall first be burned. And so he there denounced the Pope as Christ's enemy and as the Antichrist. And then he was forthwith taken out and tied to the stake, and the, 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 the fire was kindled. And as the fire grew up around him, he took his right hand, the same hand that he had used to sign the recantation of biblical Christianity, and he held it there until it was burnt to a crisp, saying repeatedly, repeatedly thou unworthy right hand. And then repeating the words of the martyr Stephen, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and he died. And Fox's Book of Martyrs says that the Catholics were completely foiled, their object being frustrated. Cranmer, like Samson, having completed a greater ruin upon his enemies in the hour of death than he did in his life. So men like Nicodemus and Joseph, who had been cowardly and quiet up until now, at the death of Christ and many more after the resurrection of Christ, boldly proclaimed Christ. 
Now, we don't know what happened to Nicodemus and Joseph, but many, uh, many of these individuals who had been priests suffered persecution under the very system that they had once served. So what about you? Where, where do you fit in with all of this? Do you love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God? Do you fear man more than you fear God? Do you stand up for Jesus in word and deed in the workplace, in the classroom, in your neighborhood? On Wednesday evening, we spoke about the Apostle Paul's declaration from Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to Jews and to Greeks. Are you ashamed of the gospel? I gave a testimony of a time that I was ashamed of the gospel. A time that, that back as a young Christian, I remember going to, to a Bible study and coming back on the bus and, and having my Bible, but, but I, I tried to hide my Bible in my pocket because I, I was afraid that the people would think that I was, was some kind of, of crazy Bible thumper. But, but then the irony hit me that, that I was, was more fearful of people who hated God then I was afraid of God, of God, and I thought, should I really be concerned about somebody who's going to judge me for carrying a Bible? Beloved, the same is true for you and me. If, if somebody is going to get angry at us or to judge us or even to, to persecute us or even to kill us because we are, are standing up for Christ... Who should we be afraid of? Whose opinion should really matter to us? Are we going to stand up for God? Or are we going to stand against God? Now, if you're sitting here remembering times that you haven't done or said something that you should do, you you might be feeling guilty. And, and maybe there should be a degree of guilt. This is, this is something that you need to repent of. But what does 1 John 1.9 say? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As Robert Murray McShane said, for every time you look at yourself and your sin, look ten times at Christ and the cross. Don't wallow in guilt. Confess it to God. Trust he is faithful, not only to forgive you, but to cleanse you. If you ask God for more boldness in declaring the gospel, do you think that that is a prayer that he is not going to answer? God will answer answer that prayer. He will help you. But the last thing that I want to do is create a, a legalistic church culture that you feel obligated to share the gospel as if that would make, make God love you more, as if that would make you more accepted in this church. 
Beloved, if you are in Christ, God cannot love you any more than he does at this very moment. If you're in Christ, that there is nothing that you can do to add or to take away from God's love for you. So my prayer is that you would be motivated by God's love for you to love him and to love others so that you can't help but do it, so that that you would be, be looking for every opportunity to proclaim Christ in word and in deed. On Wednesday, I gave the analogy of, of grandparents with their grandkids. They love their grandkids so much you can't keep them from, from showing you pictures from their wallet and from talking to you about, about their grandkids and the things that, that their grandkids are doing. If that's true of a grandparent for a grandchild, how much more should we be motivated by love for God? And if you are motivated by love for God, that love just, it will bubble out of you. It just, it will become part of your conversation. You, you think about and you talk about what you love. So we pray that, that God would give us more love for him and for others so that you can't help it. But that's not all. We also need to pray that that God would give us a holy fear of him, a holy fear that far outstrips any fear of man. Please turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. In In the context of proclaiming his name, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The the, the context here, Jesus is saying that that God cares for his children. He says that if if he's arguing from the the lesser to the greater, he, he says if he cares even for swallows and sparrows, how much more does he care for his children? And beloved, if God is caring for us, we have nothing to fear from his enemies. But Jesus says in verses 32 and 33, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So I would encourage each one of us, I want to encourage each one of us to, to be real with God, to, to acknowledge where we fall short, to, to let the, the light of these passages expose our hearts, expose the reality. In some cases, it's going to be hearts who profess belief in Christ but do not genuinely believe in him, who have not repented unto salvation. And if that's true, I want to remind you again of the cross of Christ, of Jesus who died, who bore the Father's wrath so that you don't have to. I want to also encourage you of the other side of the gospel, that that. 
Christ's righteousness can be applied to you, that all of the, the good deeds, all of the perfect obedience that Christ ever did has been transferred to those whose faith is in him. This is the glory of the gospel. And I pray that, that if you are sitting here this morning as one who does not truly believe in Christ, that you would repent unto salvation. But for brothers and sisters who are genuinely saved, who, who have placed their faith in Christ, the answer is still the same. Look to the cross of Jesus. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you and for me. God loves us in Christ. God has forgiven us, has pronounced us not guilty, has given us the righteousness of Christ. Let that motivate you. Let, let your mind be filled with the glories of the gospel so that, that you are proclaiming Christ wherever you can for his glory and for the building of his kingdom. Let's pray together.